Darkcast Network. Welcome to the dark side of podcasting. Welcome to Murder and Mimosas, a true crime podcast brought to you by a mother and daughter duo, bringing you murder stories with the mimosas in hand. Just a quick disclaimer before we get started. Our show is Murder and Mimosa, a true crime podcast. This means that we do discuss crimes, including but not limited to disappearances, murder, and sexual assault. All our episodes are told with the respect of the victims and the victims' families in mind. We strive to ensure that we provide factual information, but some information is more verifiable than others. With that, grab your mimosas and let's dive in. Welcome back, Murderitas. Today we're diving into another chilling tale that will leave you questioning everything you thought you knew. I'm Danica. I'm Shannon. Grab your detective hat and join us as we unravel the twisted web of lies, deceit, and mystery in this spine-tingling true crime story. Are you ready to uncover the truth? You sip. We share. On July 13, 1966, at about 11 p.m., Speck broke into the townhouse located at 2319 East 100th Street in the Jeffrey Manor neighborhood of Chicago. This townhouse served as a dormitory for nursing students. He brandished a knife and committed some horrifying acts. I understand that you may be wondering what horrifying things he did when he came in brandishing this knife. Before we do that, let's quickly review Richard's past. Richard Benjamin Speck was born in Kirkwood, Illinois in 1941 and was the seventh of eight children of Benjamin Franklin Speck and Mary Margaret Carbaugh. The family moved to Monmouth, Illinois shortly after Speck was born. He and his sister Caroline were much younger than their four older sisters and two older brothers. His mother was religious and a teetotaler. His father worked as a packer at Western Stoneware in Monmouth, having previously worked as a farmer and a logger. I was just wondering what a teetotaler was. <laughs> a teetotaler is someone who refrains from alcohol. Oh, um, okay. So Speck's father, who was 53 years old, passed away from a heart attack in 1947 when he was about six years old. So rumor has it the Speck was pretty close to his father. They had a close relationship. And just three years after his father passed away on May 10th of 1950 in Palo Pinto, Texas, his mother got married to a guy named Carl August Rudolph Lindbergh. Wow, that's a mouthful. Yes. Imagine having to learn to write that in school. Yeah. Lindbergh and his mother had first connected on a train trip to Chicago. Texas native Lindbergh worked as a traveling insurance salesman. What were these two men in his life even like? Well, Lindbergh, his stepfather, had a 25-year criminal history, including multiple DUIs and forgeries. In contrast, uh, suspects father Lindbergh, who was a heavy drinker. Seems like a weird combination with a teetotaler, but, <laughs> right. you know. Lindbergh had DUIs, so it doesn't sound like he was much better. She really picked him for somebody who doesn't like to drink. Yeah. 
Before moving in with their mother in Lindbergh in rural Santo, Texas, about 40 miles west of Fort Worth, Texas, Speck and his sister Caroline spent a few months living with their married sister, Sarah Thornton, in Monmouth, where Speck ended up completing the second grade. The Mythical True Crime Podcast is now proudly joining the Dark Cast Network of indie podcast creators. Join us as we delve into the mysterious and the macabre, exploring captivating tales of true crime, legends, and unsolved mysteries from the realms of mythology and reality. Uncover the dark, true tales of modern legends with our spoken narratives and the blend of history, crime, and the supernatural. But at the age of 23, Robert, Speck's elder brother, lost his life in a car accident in 1952. Wow, his father and his brother died before he turned 30? That's a lot of loss for somebody so young. Yes, and Speck struggled in school, and he also refused to put on reading glasses that he needed, which obviously made it even harder for him in school. He had to repeat the eighth grade at J.L. Long Junior High partly because he was afraid of being stared at, and he kind of just stayed quiet as a result. In the fall of 1957, he enrolled in the ninth grade at Crozer Technical High School, and he failed every single subject. He left school in January of 1958, the year that he turned 16, and did not return for his second semester. Much like his father, I suppose, he started drinking when he was 12, and by the time he was 15, he was pretty much always drunk. I know during this time, therapy was not a big thing, but I wonder if that would have helped him at all. He obviously took after his father with the drinking, though. Right, and I guess probably learned that from his stepfather, too. Right, you do what you see. Mm -hmm. After his first arrest for trespassing in 1955, when he was 13, he was repeatedly arrested for misdemeanors over the next eight years. So Richard Benjamin Speck, rather than Richard Benjamin Lindbergh, was the name he went back to after he got married. Robbie Lynn Speck was born on July 5th of 1962, while Speck was serving a 22-day jail sentence for disturbing the peace after getting into a fight in McKinney, Texas, while under the influence of alcohol. So, wow, missed his father of the year there. Yeah. In July of 1963, Speck, who was just 21, was convicted of forgery and burglary and was sentenced to three years in prison. In addition to forging and cashing a co-worker's $44 paycheck, Speck had robbed a grocery store for cigarettes, beer, and $3 in cash. Oh, my God. But, like... <laughs> That sounds so little until you look at the paycheck and you're like, oh, I guess that was a lot because $44 was somebody's whole paycheck. Yeah, that's true. In 1965, he was granted parole following a 16 month of incarceration at the Texas State Penitentiary located in Huntsville, Texas. After his release, a whole week went by and then Speck was arrested again on January 9th of 1965. In the parking lot of her apartment building, Speck attacked a woman with a 17-inch carving knife. Speck fled when the woman began to scream. It didn't take long for the police to show up and arrest Speck a few blocks away. Speck returned to his home away from home, the Huntsville prison, for a 16-month sentence that would run concurrently 
with his parole violation sentence after being found guilty of aggravated assault. However, he was released after just six months after his parole violation sentence ended on July 2nd, 1965, due to an error. Lucky for him, but that is a major error. Yes. So Speck drove for the Patterson Meat Company for three months after getting released from prison. His absence from work resulted in his termination, despite the fact that he was involved in six accidents while driving the company truck. Six? Yeah. They just, but it was like, oh, you didn't show up for work today, though, so I'm going to fire you now. <laughs> wow. So, um, on his mother's advice, Speck moved in with a 29-year-old divorced woman in December of 1965, who was a former professional wrestler and <laughs> yeah, was working as a bartender as a bartender at Jenny's Lounge, which was his favorite bar. That way he could watch her three kids. This was his mother's advice. Well, I'm a bit confused as to why his mother gave him this advice, but okay. I left it the part where I, they're married. <laughs> oh, okay. So after they get married, she's like, I don't know, maybe you should move in with your... Okay, that makes more sense. Wife slash wrestler slash bartender. But after Speck and Malone split up, Malone filed for divorce in January of 1966. In a knife fight at Jenny's Lounge, where his now ex-wife mm -hmm. works, the same month that she filed for divorce, divorce Speck gave a man a stab wound. So, you know, she probably did the right thing. Oh, wow. After his mother hired a defense lawyer, the charge of aggravated assault against him was dropped to disturbance of the peace. And Speck was sentenced to three days in jail and a $10 fine for not paying a previous fine. This marked Speck's final encounter with the Dallas police custody. I'm sure they were singing their praises. Mm -hmm. well, or, I mean, praises, but he was gone. Speck purchased a 12-year-old car on March, on, March, <laughs> March, on March 5th, 1966. The next evening, he robbed a grocery store, taking 70 cartons of cigarettes, which he later sold from his car's trunk in the parking lot. Okay, I was thinking he's really addicted to these <laughs> cigarettes. <laughs> no, no, he's just trying to make some money. On March 8th, after tra tracking this car that Speck had left behind, the police ended up issuing a warrant for his arrest for burglary. If that warrant had been used to get him, that would have been his 42nd arrest in Dallas, and he would have undoubtedly been sentenced to more time behind bars, barring no more errors. Speck was driven by his sister, Caroline, to the Dallas bus depot on March 9th, 1966, for um, where he boarded a bus to go to Chicago, Illinois. I understand that he is their family, but between his mom and Caroline, it seems a bit like they are enabling him. Not even a bit. They are enabling him. <laughs> well, after spending a few days in Chicago with his other sister, Martha Thornton, and her family, Speck went back to Monmouth, Illinois, which is, you know, the place of his childhood, where he first lodged with some, like, longtime family friends. Speck's other sibling, Howard, who is a carpenter in Monmouth, secured a position for him to sandblast or sand plasterboard for, like, one of his carpenter friends in the same town. On March 16th, 1966, Speck was enraged to find 
that his ex-wife had gotten married again just two days after receiving a divorce. So, <laughs> how dare she move on? On March 25th, he decided to relocate to the Christie Hotel. He's like in the heart of Monmouth, where he primarily frequented the taverns. Shocker. And Speck and a few friends went bar hopping in Gulfport, Illinois at the end of March. And wouldn't you believe it, he was arrested by the police and held overnight. This was because it was reported that Speck had threatened a man with a knife in a tavern restroom, which, you know, we know he has a history of knives in taverns. When 65-year-old Monmouth resident Miss Virgil Harris arrived home at 1 in the morning on April 3rd, She's coming home at one in the morning. Anyway, she discovered a thief there with a knife. Standing six feet tall, he was a white man described as, quote, very polite and speaking, quote, very softly with a southern drawl. She was blindfolded, bound, sexually assaulted. Her home was looted, and the $2.50 she had made that night watching babies was taken by the man. Oh, now we know. Yeah, I forgot about that. I was like... (laughs) I can't remember why she was out so late. She's 65. What are you doing, Virgil? She was out. But can you imagine someone doing that to you and then describing them as very polite? <laughs> no. Okay. No. As, uh, when I read it, I was like, you described them as what? What part of them was polite? No. So after working as a bartender at her brother-in-law's pub, Frank's Place, in downtown Monmouth for a week, Mary Catherine Pierce of 32 was last seen leaving the tavern at about 12.20 a.m. on April 9th. On April 13th, after her body was reported missing, it was discovered that day in an abandoned hog house behind the tavern. Her liver had been ruptured by an abdominal blow that caused her death. When Speck arrived at Frank's place on April 15th to pick up his last carpentry paycheck, he was asked to stay in town so that he could be questioned further. Speck had been to Frank's place often, and the abandoned hog house was one of the several that he had assisted in building in the previous month. That seems weird that it's abandoned if it was just built, Mm -hmm. but what do I know? So on April 19th, when the police arrived at the Christie Hotel to question Speck further, they found that he had left the hotel just a few hours earlier, claiming to be heading to the laundromat and carrying his suitcases. Instead, though, he'd gotten out of town. When his room was searched, things that had been reported missing from two previous local burglaries in the previous months were discovered, along with a radio and a costume, no, costume jewelry, that Virgil Harris had reported missing from her home. It seems like these things are starting to close in around him, but he seems to slip away each time things happen. Well, let's... Go back to that terrible thing that Richard did with a knife. On July 13th, 1966, at 11 p.m., Speck broke into that townhouse I talked about on 100th Street. So he only went in with a knife, and he entered and ended up murdering Mary Ann Jordan, Patricia Matusak, Gloria Davy, Suzanne Ferris, Pamela Wilking, Merletta Gargulo and Valentina Passion. 
where is this? These, these are some crazy names. It sounds so like a is, different country. <laughs> they are. So this is in Chicago, but all of these women were nursing students. Okay. And a lot of them were from other countries. Okay, that makes sense. So it's possible that Speck's initial plan was to carry out a routine burglary. However, he did later claim to be high on drugs and drunk, which... Shocker. Yeah. For hours, Speck detained the women into one of the bedrooms, taking them out one at a time, killing them all by either stabbing them or strangling them, and then raping and strangling Gloria Davy, who was 22 at the time, and that was his final victim. There were about 20 to 30 minute intervals between each murder in which he would just kind of like hang out in the room with them, talk to them like he was like literally on the floor, like powwow circle style. Oh my gosh. So no, I'm not trying to talk to you. Yeah. Uh, Carazon Amaru, Amaru, one of the women managed uh, to avoid death. She was also in the apartment. She hid beneath a bed while Speck was out of the room one of the times. And it's possible that Speck misplaced his count um, because that's a lot of women to keep track of. Where he knew that the townhouse was occupied by eight women, was not aware that a ninth woman was staying overnight that night. Either way, um, Amaru hid until like six in the morning the next day, and that's when police were notified. And the first on the scene were just shocked by the scene in front of them. Shock. And what did you feel this morning when you heard the news that he had died? Well, I was just happy that he said, too bad the man that suffered more took the easy way out. But I think it's going to be a lot better for the remaining members of the family so they don't have to suffer every year when that sucker came up for hearings. Stay with us. We'll be right back. I'm Michael Severs, the writer, producer, and creator of The Silver King's War, a podcast series about my father's Second World War as a B-26 bombardier. Stanley L. Silverfield, a first lieutenant in the United States Army Air Corps from Birmingham, Alabama, rode in the nose the greenhouse of the famed Martin Marauder. You can find The Silver King's War wherever you listen to podcasts. So Speck's fingerprints were matched to those recovered from the scene. Claude Lunsford, a wanderer, recognized Speck two days after the killings. On July 15th in the evening, Speck, Lunsford, and an additional man had consumed alcohol on the fire escape of the Star Hotel located at 617 West Madison. On July 16th, after finding Speck in his room at the Star Hotel, Lunsford recognized a sketch of the murderer in the evening paper and called the police at about 9.30 p.m. Despite the fact that their records indicated the call had been placed, the police did not answer and did not come. At midnight, Speck made an attempt on his own life and the desk clerk at the Star Hotel called for help. Had nobody at the hotel recognized him, though? Well, this was like a pretty seedy flop house, so everyone kind of minded their own business. 
On July 17th, Speck was transported to Cook County Hospital at 12.30 a.m. Dr. Leroy Smith, who is a 25-year-old surgical resident physician, recognized Speck at the hospital after learning about the Born to Raise Hell tattoo from a newspaper article. After calling the police, Speck was eventually taken into custody. After Speck was arrested, three weeks passed before he was even questioned due to the concern over the recent Miranda decision, which had overturned the conviction of several criminals. Are you talking about his Miranda rights? Right. While this is like a duh thing for us now, we see it on every show, even though some of us haven't been arrested, you could probably still recite the Miranda rights. It was just coming into effect. The police did not want anyone to say that due to Speck's hospitalization and, you know, the medications and things that he was on, the Speck could not understand his rights. Although Speck sub- subsequently stated he didn't remember the killing, he had admitted the crime to Dr. Leroy Smith at the Cook County Hospital. Since the confession was made while Speck was under sedation, Smith was not called to testify. However, knowing about the hospital confession, Illinois Supreme Court Justice John J. Stamos, the state attorney for Cook County during Speck's trial, said, quote, we didn't need it because they had a direct observer, the survivor. In 1978, Speck made his first public admission of guilt regarding the killings during an interview with the Chicago Tribune columnist Bob Green. He detailed the brutal murders in great detail in a film that was made in 1988 by inmates at the Stateville Correctional Center. Once more, he admitted to being high that evening, but he rejected the notion that drugs had any less of an impact, saying he could have, had, quote, done it sober, end quote. I'm not sure you should admit that out loud. Yeah. With a press gag order in place, Speck's jury trial got underway in Corolla, Illinois, just three hours southwest of Chicago. On April 3rd of 1967, in Carazon Amaru, the lone surviving student nurse positively identified Speck in court. Upon being questioned about her ability to identify the assassin of her fellow students, Amaru got up from her witness box, moved straight in front of Speck, pointed her finger at him, almost touching him before declaring, quote, this is the man. End oh, quote. girl. Wow. Yeah. I didn't know you were allowed to do that. Though. I didn't either. Lieutenant Emil Gies further stated in his testimony that Richard Speck's fingerprints had been matched to those that they had found at the scene. The jury deliberated for 49 whole minutes, probably just long enough to fill out some paperwork, Yeah. on April 15th before finding Speck guilty and recommending the death penalty. Judge Herbert J. Peshen commended, I'm sorry, not commended, that would be awful. <laughs> he condemned Speck <laughs> to death by electric chair on June 5th. He commended the jury on their <laughs> beautiful idea of recommending the death penalty. But he immediately issued a stay of execution pending an automatic appeal. So November 12th, 1968, the Illinois Supreme Court affirmed his conviction and death sentence. So, due to his possession of two sparrows, 
that had flown into his cell at the Stateville Correctional Center in Cresco, Illinois. Speck earned the like nickname Birdman while incarcerated, which was a reference to the movie Birdman and Alcatraz. He was like characterized as being very reclusive. He collected stamps, loved to listen to music. Um, in his time there, he requested new shirts, a radio, and a few other ign- like insignificant things from the warden when he interacted with him. He was referred to by the warden as a, quote, big nothing doing time, end quote. <laughs> okay. Speck was not a model prisoner. He was frequently found in possession of drugs or moonshine. He never let punishment for his transgressions deter him, saying, quote, how can I end up in trouble? I have spent 12,000 years here, end quote. This honestly does not surprise me. He's gone against the rules from a young age. Yes, and I don't know if he's saying he spent 12,000 years in prison or in trouble, but <laughs> yes, same. Um, and what are you going to do to me now? Yeah, well, I mean, he did spend a lot of time in jail. Yeah, so. That is true. So Speck was taken from the state's Stateville Correctional Center to Silver Cross Hospital in Julia, Illinois, just prior to December 5th of 1991, after expressing discomfort in his chest. One day short of turning 50 on December 5th, Speck passed away in the wee hours of that day from what was thought to be a heart attack. According to the coroner, Speck had, quote, clogged arteries, emphysema, and an enlarged heart, end quote. All of these, or even one of these, probably played a role in his deadly heart attack, which we heard in that sound clip. The investigator thought that was the easy way out, and he should have suffered more, which... Yeah. Speck was cremated, and his ashes were dispersed in an undisclosed undisclosed area of Juliet because his sister was afraid his grave would be vandalized and honestly it probably would have yeah thank you for joining us on this chilling journey through the dark corners of true crime you enjoyed unraveling this twisted tale with us and don't forget to like share and subscribe for more spine tingling stories We always recommend more bubbly and less OJ. Cheers! If you'd like to see pictures from today's episode, you can find us at murder.mimosas on Instagram. You can also find us at murder.mimosas on TikTok, Twitter. And if you have a case you would like us to do, you can send that to murder.mimosas at gmail.com. And lastly, we are on Facebook at Murder and Mimosas Podcast, where you can interact with us there. We love any type of feedback you can give us. So please rate and review us on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.